Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Previously on Truth and Justice. It's 6.20 in the morning with Kirby still in his bed fast asleep. Kenneth kissed his wife Kiao goodbye for the last time. The sun had come up, but it still wasn't exactly daylight. She left her house and no one knows for sure which direction she went. But we do know where her walk came to a tragic end. A man named Danny Stanberry let his dogs out the back door to go to the bathroom. Stanberry actually lived on Mark Street, which is one street over from September Road but his backyard bordered on September. Clark also noted something that's very odd. He said that he noticed a large, what appeared to be kitchen knife in Kiao's right hand. Every inch of September road was scoured for evidence, up and down each side of the fence. And very little was found. A hair on a fence post and possibly some blood and let's not forget about that night. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. For all of you that listened to the Friday follow-up episode this week, you're aware that the last few days have been a bit of a struggle here in the office. Mike and I and our legal team have been dealing with the iTunes issue for most of the week, and in fact, today is Friday, it's currently 2.30 in the afternoon, and we're just sitting down to record because we've been on the phone and email literally all day long since we walked into the studio this morning. So with all that being said, I want to give you all a little bit of an update on the situation Johnny Rose and I have actually made contact, and he's been part of the discussions today, and he's been part of the solution with us all working together to try to get the iTunes situation resolved. So one thing that I would ask is that while I do appreciate a lot of you have come to bat for us and have shown a lot of support for truth and justice, I am asking for all of you to, at this point, let's give Johnny a break because I can't really get into a lot of details right now, but what I can tell you is he is actively working with us at this point to try to correct the iTunes situation. So please cut Johnny some slack for right now, and let's just keep moving forward and forget the drama and focus on the case, which is what we want to do today. So in today's episode, which, fair warning, may not be the most organized episode that we've had so far, given the fact that we've been pretty busy this morning dealing with other things. But in today's episode, we want to do two things. 
First of all, Mike and I have spent the last two weeks going back through all of the evidence we have, every single police report, every single forensic report. We've been looking up names and tracking down addresses and building a site map to help us better recreate Kiao's steps on the morning that she was killed, and also to give us a better idea of the investigation that happened after she was killed. So that's where we're going to start today, by going back to the evidence and giving a clearer picture of what happened on the morning of July 25th, 1991. Then in the second segment today, we're going to take all of that information and all the other information that we have, and we're going to compare it to the statement that was given to us by Sylvia three weeks ago in episode 317. So that's the plan. So for right now, let's go ahead and get started with recreating the crime scene. At the end of February this year, just four months ago, we told the story of a murder on September. That was episode 301. At that time, I told you the story of the murder of Kiao Gove, given all the information that I had in my possession. Since then, we've gone through four months of investigation, we've obtained new documents and talked to many new witnesses, some who are willing to go on the record and some who are not, and we now have the answer to a lot of the questions about the crime scene. And I think that we can pretty close to accurately retrace Kiao's steps on that fateful morning. So let's start off with the beginning of Kiao's morning. The initial contact that we have with Kiao on July 25th, 1991, was about 5.30 in the morning when her husband Kenneth got up to get ready for work. Kenneth has said in multiple statements that when he got up, Kiao was working out on her Nautilus machine. He said they went about their normal routine, and at around 6.10, Kenneth kissed Kiao goodbye for the last time. He arrived at work, which is confirmed by his supervisor, at 6.20 a.m. on July 25th. Kenneth has told us that it was Kiao's routine to start a walk right around 7 o'clock in the morning. One question that has loomed over us for many months is which direction was Kiao walking? Now, the sad part is, this information has actually been staring us directly in the face the entire time we've been working on this case. It was missed by all of us, or I should say most of us, because there have been a few people on the fan page who have caught on to this that directed me to this report. The police actually did know the entire time which direction Kiao was walking, or at least they had the resources to know. In a report generated by Kyle Royster, he states that on August 1st, 1991, so that's one week after the murder, he went to the home of Billy Joe in Cesar Espinoza. Now you've heard this statement before, months ago, but there's something that I think most of us missed in here. The wife, Billy Joe, is the one that stated that around 7.30 in the morning, she observed a Hispanic male, about 35 years old, riding a 10-speed bicycle. But Mr. Espinoza, that's Cesar, stated that he actually observed Kiao walk past his house at 7.20 a.m. But here's the part that we had missed before. He said that she walked past his house towards September at 7.20 a.m. What Cesar has done here is given us a clear direction that Kiao was walking. All we had to do was figure out where Cesar and Billy Joe lived, which, through background checks, I was able to do. They resided at 9841 Grady Lane. 9841 Grady Lane is the house on the corner of Grady and Apache Lane. That would be directly to the east of Kiao's home. Which means if Cesar Espinoza's statement is correct, on the morning Kiao was murdered, she left her house and made an immediate left, walking down Grady Lane towards September. And as Mr. Espinoza stated, he saw her at 7.20 a.m. Now, it's been noted by both Kenneth and some of Kiao's friends that she walked multiple laps around the school every morning. So we know that one of the laps occurred at 7.20 a.m. 
but I don't believe that this was the first or the last lap. I believe this would be the second lap, the one in the middle. And we have a few pieces of evidence that help to corroborate this. We're next going to move on to Miss Gladys Blanford. Now, this piece of the puzzle actually starts with a Mrs. Cornelius Bonner. Mrs. Cornelius Bonner lived at 9711 Grove Oak Street. She told Detective Davidson that her daughter, Gladys Blanford, had actually seen Kia on the morning she was killed between 7 and 7.15 a.m. Through background checks, we now know that Gladys Blanford lived at 9906 Mill Valley Lane. Her home would be on the opposite corner to the Espinosa's. It was located on the corner of Mill Valley and Apache, on the southeast corner of that intersection. Now, I will get together some kind of a graphic and get it up on the website and out on social media so you guys can walk through this. So hopefully that'll be available to you as you're listening to this episode. So, Gladys Blanford supposedly sees Kia between 7 and 7.15 a.m. This would be consistent with Kenna's statement that she usually starts her walk at 7 o'clock in the morning. I believe that Gladys saw Kia making her first lap around the track. So imagine that she leaves her house at 7 a.m. She turns left. She walks past the intersection of Grady and Apache for the first time around 7.05, 7.10, or at least somewhere between 7 and 7.15 a.m. Now, at a brisk pace, it should take Kiao about 15 minutes to make a lap around the track. That's why I say it was likely around 7.05 when she walked past the intersection. So at this point, we have two witnesses that start to give us a bit of a timeline. She leaves her house. She turns left. She passes the intersection of Apache and Grady at 7.05. She continues around the school in a clockwise rotation and passes back by the same intersection at 7.20 a.m. So that would mean she's now starting her second lap. Now, I don't believe that the attack happened after this lap because we have four different witnesses at the high school that all said they saw Kiao walking by at 7.30 a.m. Given her 15-minute lap time and the other witnesses, all the pieces of the puzzle seem to fit together with Kiao passing past the high school on her second lap on the southwest corner of the grounds at 7.30 a.m. Now, if all of this information is true, if Gladys Blanford indeed saw her at 7.05, and Cesar Espinoza did see her at 7.20, and the four workers at the school saw her at 7.30, that would put her walking back by the intersection of Apache and Grady for the third time somewhere between 7.35 and 7.40. So what does that tell us? Why is this important? Well, it gives us a little more of a clue into how the attack might have occurred. Again, if all this information is correct, that means that there was between 10 and 15 minutes, that's the maximum window of time, from the time that Kia was attacked until the ambulances arrived on the scene. Because remember, the bell for school rang at 7.50, and according to the school workers' statements, right as the bell was ringing, they saw the ambulances showing up on the crime scene. So in that window of time, you have to subtract for the response time of the EMS, which based on the reports was less than two minutes. You have to account for the dispatch time that would be at least a minute. You have to account for the amount of time that Danny Stanberry was on the phone with 911 and then backtrack to him hearing his dog bark, walking across the street, trying to talk to Kia, walking back, making the call. When you piece all that together, I think it leaves us a window of opportunity for the actual crime to be less than five minutes. And I believe that Kiao's wounds and her condition when EMS arrives on the scene is consistent with that. Remember, she had her lungs, liver, aorta, all punctured by those knife wounds. She was bleeding profusely out of her thigh and her buttocks. 
With all of those injuries, I don't believe that she could have lived any longer than three to six minutes before she would be completely brain dead. Given the fact that when Danny Stanberry arrived on the scene, Kia was still able to track him with her eyes, but she couldn't talk. I don't believe their injuries could have been inflicted more than a minute or two before that. And once the EMS got on the scene, they thought she had enough signs of life that they attempted to treat her. So given all this, let me break down really quickly what we know based on these statements about Kiao's morning. Again, 7 o'clock, she leaves her house. She walks clockwise. She passes the intersection of Grady and Apache around 7.05 in the morning. Now, if this is indeed where she was attacked and the attacker had already been there, this would be the first time that she's walking past that person or persons. She goes around the block, goes around the school, past her home again, crosses the intersection again at 7.20 a.m. That would be the second lap walking past the potential killer or killers if they were already in position. She continues her path at 7.30. She crosses the high school again. And then something that has come up for discussion is the possibility of Kiao stopping by her house to pick up the knife at that point. I think this is a viable theory, and it would make sense if she was being harassed on her first two laps. But here's the rub. Given the timeline that we have, and this is based on witness statements, so it may not be accurate, but given what we know right now, I don't believe she would have had time to stop inside the house, get a knife, and get back out, and the murder to have still occurred. Again, when we backtrack the time when the ambulance arrived, all the way back to when the killers had to have left the scene, we're looking at a window of opportunity of two to three minutes. I would say five at the most. So I wouldn't say impossible, but it would seem unlikely that she would have had enough time, given that she was seen at the high school at 7.30, to stop at her house, pick up the knife, continue her walk, get abducted, and end up in front of Danny Stanberry's house by 7.40. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But while we're on that subject, let's talk a little bit more about the knife. The big question is, was that, in fact, Kiao's knife? And the answer to that question is, we do not know that for sure. Remember that there were no fingerprints pulled off that knife, and that's an important fact. If Kiao had been holding the knife and the knife was from her house, I would expect to see lots of fingerprints on that knife. And remember that the forensic examiners tested the knife for blood and they found trace elements of blood, but by 1991 standards, not enough to test for DNA. So what could that mean for us? Well, I believe that it is just as likely that that knife actually was the murder weapon and that the killer wiped it clean and then threw it down on the ground next to her and fled the scene. That would explain why there was some blood, but not much, and no fingerprints on the knife. Now, the other option is that it was, in fact, Kiao's knife and she was carrying it for protection. 
But the only evidence we really have of that, when we really look into what Kenneth Gove actually told detectives, is that there was a knife missing from his drawer that he thinks would match that one. But it almost sounds like through the reports that he was never actually shown the knife. It was just described to him. He says that he read it in the medical examiner's report. And in looking at the knife, it's a pretty standard butcher knife that would come in any set that you could buy in most stores. So certainly, we have to consider the fact that it was, in fact, Kiao's knife. But I also cannot say with any kind of certainty that we know that that was Kiao's knife. And I think it is equally plausible that that knife was one of the murder weapons and was left by the killer. Remember, this is a large butcher knife with about an 8-inch blade with one side flat and one side sharpened. The knife itself starts at next to nothing, and it becomes as wide as about an inch and a half near the hilt. Keep in mind, many of the wounds that were inflicted on Kiao were inflicted by a knife that was making a wound that ended up being an inch and a quarter to an inch and a half wide, with one end flat and one end sharpened. This knife does fit that description. Now let's move on to the keys. As much as we're all hesitant to start this debate again... Something that may not have occurred to us before, and I didn't really realize until I dug into what the crime scene investigators actually investigated on the crime scene, is the fact that if Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Wendell are correct, and if the rumors that were heard by Sylvia are correct, that would mean that the initial attack did in fact take place near the intersection of Grady and Apache. Also keep in mind that Jim Clemente's profile indicated that there would be a primary and a secondary crime scene. We've also established the fact that that corner of the school ground is the only place with any type of concealment whatsoever. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that no matter who did commit the crime, that it's likely the attack began at that intersection near Apache and Grady. The problem is Daniel Cannon, the person who actually did the evidence collection at the crime scene, never searched past September Road. In his trial testimony, he says that he searched this side of the fence and that side of the fence along September. We don't even know which direction he went, whether he went north or south. And in fact, as I read his testimony right now, his statement is this exactly, quote, If this is September Street, here I searched on this side of the fence along the wooded area here. So, we actually don't even know if he searched both sides of the fence. Daniel Cannon is also the person who processed the butcher knife for fingerprints, and as I stated earlier, he found nothing. No fingerprints whatsoever. So, getting back to the keys... If Kenneth Gove is correct, along with Kiao's personal friends, in the fact that she always carried her keys wrapped in a white handkerchief in her right hand, I think that it's very logical that the place she may very well have lost the keys would have been where the attack initially started, and that would be on the corner of Grady and Apache, the place where the police never looked for any evidence. Now let's process this even further. We know that there was a white handkerchief found on Kiao's person somewhere, We don't know if it was in her hand, in her pocket, or where it was. But it was collected as evidence, and it was processed by Detective Watts years later because he could see spots on the handkerchief. As it turned out, those spots came back to be grease. Now let's take that and compare it back to what Kenneth Gove said, which is that her handkerchiefs that she used to carry the keys always had black spots of grease on them from the graphite and the grease on the keys. So we can at least assume that the handkerchief that was on her person was, in fact, the handkerchief that she used to carry her keys. So if she didn't have her keys on her, that she would have had to have, for some reason, been wanting to carry that handkerchief around with nothing in it. But let's look into this even further. As I've stated before, we do not have Judy Gonzalez's actual affidavit. 
but what we do have are the notes made by the detectives who spoke to her. Here's a report from Officer Hamilton, dated 11-22-91. I received a call from a Judy Gonzalez. She said on July 25th that she saw three black males and a white male dragging Miss Gove from a white and gray Z-28 Camaro. Miss Gove was struggling with them and screaming for help. She saw one of them cover her mouth with a white rag to keep her from screaming. So in Judy Gonzalez's initial statement, she clearly says that she saw a white rag being held over Kiao's mouth. My contention would be it's very likely that that white rag was, in fact, the handkerchief that she carried her keys in. And since it was being held over her mouth, it makes perfect sense that right at that moment, in that place, the keys had come out of the handkerchief. They had just landed in a place where the police never searched. So what about that scream that Judy Gonzalez heard? Remember, we have one notation in Royster's notes that says that someone reported hearing a scream that morning. But in his notes, he never said who made the report or where from. But it would corroborate with what Mama Judy said she saw, which was, and keep in mind in this statement, it's not a woman. She says she saw Kiao Gove being drugged into the car with a white handkerchief across her mouth after she was screaming. So as we continue to break down our timeline about the things that we do know, and again, I will preface this with the fact that we only know these based on these witnesses' statements. So if any of these witnesses' statements are incorrect, then of course the information we have is incorrect. But based on what they have told us, we know what direction Kia was walking, when she made the walk, how many laps she made, where the attack might have occurred, how she came to have the white handkerchief on her person but not her keys, and possibly where the knife came from. And furthermore, if we look at a report dated 1127 by Detective Davidson, he actually took Jesse James Swindell out to the offense location and had him describe what he saw and where. He says that he was traveling west on Grady when he saw a white Z-28 parked on the north side of Grady near Apache. He said he saw the suspects grab the complainant and put her in the white car and they drove off. He said that he told his mother that day what he had seen. Jesse also said that a couple of days later, his Aunt Mama Judy told him that the lady they saw being assaulted was killed by those people. Continuing to quote the report, quote, I talked with Jesse's mother and she confirmed that she was told this by Jesse and his aunt, who's her sister. Pauline Pointer told me that she told her sister Judy to call the police and tell them what she had seen. She said apparently Judy never called. So here's a third person, Jesse James Swindell's mother, telling police that Jesse and Judy did tell her this story back when it did occur. So now let's look at what we know about the crime scene itself. Unfortunately, we don't know a whole lot, because as you know, Kiao's body was removed before the crime scene investigators arrived on the scene. And unfortunately, since there was a fence and only a narrow opening in the fence, the area between the road and Kiao's body would be trampled by every single person that went up to the scene. That means Danny Stanbury the first time and then going back, Danny Stanbury the second time with the blanket, all of the EMTs, the first arriving officers, all of them walked through the exact same path between that gate and Kiao's body. That means that any trace forensic evidence that may have existed through that path was trampled by several people before a crime scene investigator ever got to the scene. Now, I don't see anywhere in Royster's notes where he ever did much to try to investigate whether or not Kiao crawled or was dragged. And as you're about to hear, the crime scene investigator, Daniel Cannon, didn't do a whole lot to figure that out either. Let's go back to Cannon's trial testimony. 
Based on Cannon's trial testimony, he only took one single picture of the ground where Kiao's body was, and that indicated a pool of blood on the ground. He also took one single picture of a fence post that had what he believed to be blood on it. After the fact, it was determined that this was actually rust or some kind of paint, and it was not blood at all. Here's a question at trial. And that picture showing the blood, don't you have a single picture? That was pretty much the only blood that you found out there. Answer, yes. So we've deduced from that that there was only blood right there directly on the crime scene where Kiao's body was found. But the fact of the matter is that we have no way of knowing that. Like I had mentioned in a previous Friday follow-up episode, it's entirely possible that Kiao was dripping small amounts of blood, which is what would be expected, whether she was walking or crawling or being drugged from the sidewalk through the gate to her final resting place. Any of those traces of blood would have been stepped on and ground into the ground before anybody started looking for them. And based on Cannon's testimony, he never even really looked for a blood trail. In some of Detective Watts's later notes, he says that he spoke with people on the crime scene who said they didn't notice any more blood. And as it turns out, the person that he spoke to wasn't even a police officer. Well, kind of. It was a youth action officer. Watts spoke with Randy Poteet, who worked at the high school and had showed up on the crime scene after the fact. He asked him if he remembered there being any other blood, and Poteet said no, not that he saw. What we do know is that when Watts examined Kiao's clothing, he did not find any drops of blood that went down as though she was bleeding while she was standing upright, and there was no blood on her shoes. This would indicate that one way or another, she was down on the ground when she was being stabbed. There were no noticeable grass stains on Kiao's clothing, but there is a report that says that there were some amounts of foliage found in the clothing, meaning she did pick up some grass, but it didn't stain her clothing, which to me would be an indication that she was not dragged along the ground, but either hit the ground immediately or just crawled along the ground. That would pick up some foliage, but it would not cause any staining. And that's it. That's what we know for right now. We have a better idea of what direction Kia walked, when she walked, how many times she went around the block. We now know actually less about the knife that was in her hand. I don't think that we can assume that that was most definitely her knife. And to be honest, I'm really personally leaning towards the fact that it was in fact not her knife. I don't see how it would be possible for the knife to have zero fingerprints on it unless it had been wiped down. The only reason to wipe it down is if it was being held by the murderer or murderers. We now know that we have witness statements saying that Kiao had a white rag being held over her mouth at the corner of Apache and Grady. We know that that's an area that was never searched by police. We know from previous episodes that it was Kiao's habit to carry her keys in that handkerchief. And when her body was found, the handkerchief was on her person, but the keys were not. Now I'm going to take a quick break here for our sponsors, and then we're going to see how all this compares to what Sylvia told us just a few weeks ago. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The first thing that we need to address when we're assessing the credibility of the rumors that were relayed to us by Sylvia is the possibility that there were people in the neighborhood who witnessed the attack and somehow never spoke to the police. Now, I can understand undocumented immigrants' reluctance to speak with police, but certainly the investigating officers would be persistent, or so you would think. 
So what I'm about to break down for you, and again, check on truthandjusticepod.com, our website, and also check on social media. I should hopefully have this graphic ready before this episode drops. If not, it will be up shortly thereafter, and you can go back and reference it. But what I'm about to do is break down who exactly the police spoke to and who they didn't. Now, there were several documents that led us to this, and a lot of background checks, and a lot of names being cross-referenced with addresses, as well as some off-the-record sources. So I'll try to describe this graphic to you, so you know how to orient it as you're listening to this section. The track around Spruce High School is one mile long. So that means the square around Spruce High School is made up of a quarter-mile stretch of Crenshaw Avenue on the west, quarter-mile of Grady Lane on the north, quarter-mile of September Road on the east side, and a quarter-mile of Old Seagaville Road on the south. So if you're looking at that square, Keow's house was at 9717 Grady Lane. That would be on the northwest corner of this square across the street from the high school. So the first thing that I want to address with all of you, just because I found this out and it's interesting information, remember several episodes back, all the way back to episode 302, I believe, that a Miss Rosie Simmons is the one that directed the police to look into Robert Moffat. Now, she didn't address him by name. She referred to him as the mentally unstable black man that walks around the block waving his arms and talking to himself. Well, interestingly enough, that same Miss Rosie Simmons is actually the mother of Ronnie Blackwell's girlfriend. Her house is the reason that Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Wendell were even in the neighborhood that morning. They were looking for Ronnie Blackwell at Miss Simmons' house. Miss Simmons also happens to be Kenneth and Keow's direct neighbor to the West. That's just food for thought. Now, as we continue to fill in the map, on the very southwest corner, on the west side of Crenshaw, is the apartment building where Jesse and Troy Eldridge lived. Now, if we go back up to Keow's house and head to the east, we come to Apache Lane. On the corner of Apache and Grady is Cesar and Billy Joe Espinosa's home. I personally believe that the attack took place within 100 yards of that home on Grady between Apache and September. Regardless of who did it, I believe that's where it happened. Now, all of that is just for a little bit of background information, but the place I want to focus on for the next few minutes when we're addressing Sylvia's statement that all of these undocumented immigrants never spoke to the police is what was going on on September Road, or more accurately, on Mark Street, which is the street that runs parallel to September, where all the houses have backyards that back up to September. Danny Stanberry and his wife Shirley lived at 133 Mark Street. That's just about right smack dab middle of the block, and Keow's body was found directly across from their home. Now, we have a little bit more information as far as where Keow's body was when we go back and look at Daniel Cannon's statements and testimony. He is the one that actually investigated the crime scene, and he stated clearly that Keow's body was directly in front of the fence gate, 15 feet from the gate. So that should clear up a lot of everyone else's misconceptions that were running in and out. He's the one that, after the fact, actually looked and measured as to where the blood spot was. So she's directly across from Daniel Stanberry's backyard, 15 feet inside the fence when Danny finds her. Now, if I'm correct, and the attack did take place on Grady Lane between September and Apache, everyone whose backyard faced September Lane, all the way from 101 Mark Street, all the way down to 133, which would be Stanberry's house, and even a few more houses to the south, if someone was home, they should have been able to witness the crime. But from what we thought, no one did. But what we know now is that no one ever checked. 
Kyle Royster filed a report on August 1st of 91, a week after the murder, breaking down his investigation. In that report, he lists a bunch of addresses and names of people he spoke to, and also the addresses of people that never came to the door. By going through this document along with others, we were able to determine who exactly Royster didn't talk to. So we have Danny Stanbury at 133 Mark Street. Now let's move north towards where I believe the crime actually began. The next house to the north is 131 Marks. Royster knocked on the door and there was no answer and there's no evidence that he ever returned. The next house to the north is 129 Marks. He knocked on the door, no one answered and there's no evidence that he ever returned. Now there are about four more properties between there and the north end of September where it meets Grady and there's no evidence that any of those doors were ever even knocked on. So that means that there were six houses north of Stanbury's house that were in the direct path of travel if Keow's attack began on Grady Lane between September and Apache that were never contacted by police. Now I want to point out, the way it's documented in these reports, it doesn't say no one's home. The reports say we knocked on the doors of 131 and 129 and there were no answers. So since we know that no one was ever spoken to in any of the houses between Grady Lane and where Keow's body was found, Let's now move to the south. Surely if Danny Stanberry could see Keow's body across the street, the house directly to the south of his would have the same view. This is the one that Stanberry told me also had a chain link fence and a clear view. On Royster's report, he notes this home, 137 Mark Street, as being vacant. However, according to Danny Stanberry, that's not true. Someone absolutely did live in that house. He actually knew those neighbors. The next house to the south is 151 Mark Street. Detectives knocked on the door with no answer. And the next house is 209 Mark Street. Detectives knocked on the door with no answer. So that's a lot of numbers and a lot of explanations, so let me make it simple. With the exception of Danny Stanberry, no police officer ever spoke with anyone who had a backyard that butted up to September between Grady Lane all the way through to four houses south of where Keow's body was found. No one. So for all these years, what Royster, Watts, and even us on this podcast have been saying, that there were no witnesses to this offense, that is not accurate. There very well and most likely were witnesses to this offense. The problem was, nobody ever asked them. Now, there is a lot more that I want to talk about regarding how Sylvia's statement fits into all the evidence that we have and know. But at this point, to be quite honest with you, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, and we have to get this thing edited. So we're going to go ahead and end this episode here, and we'll discuss it more in the Friday follow-up, and then next week we'll get into it even further. But based on the information that we have so far, with all of these witness statements, and the fact that no one was ever contacted as a witness on September Road, it's starting to sound like Sylvia's statement, at the very least, has a pretty strong basis in reality. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com. And I would encourage any and all of you to check out PutThemInASong.com. They can make you a custom song for any event. As a matter of fact, Shane just put together a funny song about me the other day just for kicks, which I'll share with you at some point. 
But check out PutThemInASong.com. And if you're an aspiring podcaster or you have a podcast, check them out too. Shane can write you a custom intro, sound engineer, and score your podcast. So check out Shane at PutThemInASong.com. I also want to thank our transcriptionists, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. And as always, I want to thank you for all of your engagement and all of your support. For all the trials and tribulations we've had in this last week with the iTunes issue, it was really heartwarming to see all of you stand up and go to bat for me. And I do also want to reiterate my statement from the beginning of the show that as of right now, we are working diligently on the issue. And Johnny Rose is, in fact, working with us. So I would ask you, please, from the bottom of my heart, let's give Johnny a break right now and see where this thing ends up. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Join in the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fan page on Facebook. You can like our Facebook page. You can always call into our voicemail line at 269-224-2833. And I would very much encourage all of you to do that before the Friday follow-up episodes. Or you can follow along the conversation on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.